I have started and exited multiple companies. I am an avid investor in early stage companies. I advise some of the hottest startups and have worked with many of the top tech companies across numerous industries. I'm a software developer by trade, but I also have an MBA from Duke University. I seek out companies who defy conventional wisdom to drive innovation in any industry. And in this podcast, I interview the founders of those companies for you. Hello, folks, and welcome to the podcast. I've got with me today the founders of Two You Laundry, Dan DeQuisto and Alex Mearsneck. Nailed the, it. The two <laughs> hardest names in the world to pronounce. <laughs> uh, I interviewed Alex back in 2019, and it was one of the episodes I got the most and the best feedback on. Uh, people really like him and especially like the company. And uh, I'm trying to revisit some of my more popular guests who had to pivot dramatically during COVID. So I'm really excited to do this one. Um, Dan, I realize that it is your wife's birthday. Um, as they say, happy wife, happy life. So we'll try <laughs> not true. to keep you here too late. So thank you for giving us some of your time and thank you to your wife as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> great. So for the listeners who don't know, can you give the quick history on to you laundry, the progress you made going into March, 2020 and talk about what the original vision might've been? Yeah. How, how quick do you want? <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> it's only Dan's marriage at yeah. stake here. <laughs> Yeah, Dan knows all too well. This could be 15 minutes. It could be five minutes. So I'll try to do it. I'll try yeah, to do but, a short one. But do, one. do take your time because your story is awesome. And, and again, the more people that can hear it, the, the better because it, it, it's a really good story, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we, we always get asked this question. Why, why did you guys get into laundry? Did you have some sort of traumatic experience as a kid? Did you, you know, get stuck in the dryer? And, you know, thankfully it was, it was none of that. Um, Dan and I both grew up together in Red Wing, Minnesota. Uh, it's a small town um, just south of Minneapolis. And I ended up at uh, Wake Forest for my undergrad. And my dad had always taught me front load the job, work as much as you can, try to find ways to make extra money. Um, and so when I went to Wake, I worked for another student-run startup called Wake Wash on campus. And they were a door-to-door laundry and dry cleaning delivery business for students there. Um, and I fell in love with the model. I thought I could scale to Duke, Chapel Hill, Vanderbilt, you name it. And so when they were going all to the small private ACC <laughs> schools, yep. a lot of affluent, yeah, a lot of affluent <laughs> families, um, you know, parents that are worried about their kids going off for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I wanted to buy it and I had, I think three grand saved up and which, you know, was not nearly enough. So I convinced two others to clear their savings account with me. Um, we bought it from them our sophomore year and then ended up learning more doing that than any class I had taken at Wake. Um, just loved the experience. But then when it came to you know graduate, my partners wanted to go do investment banking, marketing, and I don't want to be the guy that held them back from from selling it. So we, we ended up selling it for about 10 times what we bought it for, helped pay for you know a lot of our way through school, learned again more than any class I had taken there, thought my hands were clean of the, the laundry and dry cleaning business. Um, and moved down to Charlotte, North Carolina to do consulting at Ernst & Young. Um, and while I was there, I saw two companies on the West Coast, Washio and Rinse, uh, raise a combined $30 million to go after the $40 billion laundry and dry cleaning industry with what I felt were the wrong models. And that's when I, I called Dan up and he'd, he'd been doing sales and marketing at startups in Minneapolis. So I knew not only was he one of my you know, best friends from growing up, but he 
has a complimentary skill set to me, sales and marketing background. I was more finance and ops. Um, you know, he knew what it took to be involved in a startup. It's, you know, it's, it's a ton of sacrifice for maybe not the same benefits that you would at a fortune 500 company. Um, you gotta be scrappy. You gotta just have to have that kind of risk taking mindset. And so when I told him about it, he sure enough had that risk taking mindset, um, broke the lease on his house, uh, broke up with his girlfriend at the time. Now his wife, she's since come down and it's happily ever after full circle. Full circle. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he, he packed up the car and moved with two other or one other guy that we grew up with. Um, they drove 20 hours straight. I don't think you guys stopped at all. Um, came down to Charlotte and we started to you in late 2015. Uh, we say it's January of 2016. And it was really under three kind of reasons we were going to be different or three hypotheses that we wanted to go validate. One was instead of being the Uber for laundry where we have 1099 contractors, you know, going from, uh, you know, your house to the facility to my house to a facility and really this kind of like acute impulse decision like ride sharing or, or food delivery where, you know, if you're hungry, you need the food now. If you need to get somewhere, you need the ride now. They were trying to treat laundry the same way when in reality. So when you say they, does this mean Washio and Rinse? Washio. We're taking more of the, uh, more of the. They uh, saw Uber Uber's success and said, hey, let's go raise money, different vertical. This will be great. Um, but laundry doesn't act like ride sharing or, or food delivery. It's a chronic recurring pain point. It, you know, everyone's got their laundry day. It's Sunday or Saturday or, you know, some day of the week and they do it over and over. And so our thought was, why don't we build a solution that fits that, that behavior, not one that mirrors another successful startup. And so that was the first thought is we'll be the FedEx or the UPS for, for laundry instead of the Uber. We'll have static, you know, scheduled routes with branded, you know, branded vehicles with W2 employees instead of 1099. And that's how we'll do it. We'll get you know, efficiency back for what we have to pay in taxes and benefits and whatnot. Um, the it's interesting that you say that because Maggie, who introduced us in the, in the beginning and is also coming back to do a repeat <clears throat> podcast here next Wednesday. Um, I think she t took a very similar approach. I don't want to be the Uber of dog walking. I want full-time employees. I want them to be loyal or, you know, well compensated. Uh, may maybe they're not full-time employees. Maybe they're 1099, but they're, they're working for her. It's not just randomly. You go find a dog walker off right. the street. <laughs> and I think that control gives you, especially in businesses like dog walking or laundry, where it's so personal, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, ride sharing, it's, it's, you really just have a, an, an immediate need and you want it filled. Whereas this is, it's your dog. People look at it as their kids, their fur babies. <laughs> they want someone they can trust. Mm -hmm. um, same with laundry. It's the first big decision I think we all make every day, whether it's conscious or not what am I going to wear today? What do I look the best in, feel the best in, you know, and really represent who I am as an, as an individual. And so quality has to be at the forefront. And that was our, our second hypothesis was we can't outsource all the cleaning because that would be like Apple outsourcing its design. It's, it's, it's core competency. It's what made them who they are. And for us, we wanted quality to be what makes us who we are. And, and people remember when they use our service. Um, so quality was the second piece. How do we vertically integrate or own more of the supply chain over time? And then the last one was instead of targeting New York, Chicago, LA, and maybe getting a false positive of, Hey, it works. There's, you know, tens of millions of people up here. It's great. But then in Charlotte, it doesn't work. And it's a smaller opportunity than you thought. Our thought was, if you prove it in Charlotte, this can work in 30, 40 other U S cities. Awesome. Um, and so, so, so you talk about the three hypotheses and what did you want to turn the company into? What, where did, where, where in your mind was the five or 10 year plan to take the company at that time? Yeah, so when our Dan and I's early conversations, I mean, I think, and especially him sacrificing as much as he did to come down and move to Charlotte, it was, hey, this isn't going to be a lifestyle business. We want to make this as big as we possibly can, as quickly as we possibly can, with the goal of selling it, 
taking it public, you know, really building a, a household brand around laundry and dry cleaning. It didn't exist before. You know, it's such a highly fragmented industry. It's massive. Um, and there wasn't a clear winner and it tied, you know, as the most recognizable, but that's a detergent. There wasn't an actual physical retail business or delivery business that had made a name for itself um, mm -hmm. at that point. And so we wanted to set out to go and, and do that for the first time. That's great. And so in Charlotte, you know, so along the way, obviously your, your trucks have become ubiquitous part of the Charlotte scene in general, you see them driving around. How many, how many trucks do you, uh, do you have? In yep. Charlotte. So we've got a fleet of about 14 vehicles here in Charlotte mm -hmm. now. Um, and it, it varies, you know, given days of the week, some days are more popular, popular mm -hmm. than others. Um, and so you'll see more of a, a sea of pink out there. But <laughs> we actually, we actually had a, a, a VC from Raleigh come visit and he's like texted us. Hey, there's a, a sea of pink. I'm just driving through in Charlotte. This is incredible. And you know, like you said, immediately sticks out. You can't miss them. Yep, absolutely. Um, so you guys, going into into March because I want to talk about it as COVID starts to hit but you also had opened in Raleigh and Atlanta is that correct so yep you had yeah, delivery so services but you didn't have and you and in Charlotte you had the laundry room correct yep. um so that's a very successful retail operation that you decided to open up is there any more commentary you want to give on that pre-COVID or yeah, so I think, you know, as we set out to build this, this nationally recognized brand, we realized, especially with those three hypotheses, we have to control our own destiny, which was part of the, that was the supply chain. Um, and we need to validate that we can scale to other markets. So we went through Techstars. It's a top three accelerator program. They're the only one that had a uh, program in a city that we wanted to launch, launch in that was immediately close to us. So we used Techstars in 2017 to help raise a seed round. Um, and then also launch our second market of Atlanta. Our thought was, hey, we need to go validate that this is not just a one-hit wonder in Charlotte. Um, launched Atlanta at the tail end of it. Dan moved down to Atlanta, so moving again <laughs> within a year or two. Um, and then in Charlotte, we started to have you know multiple facilities that we were going into with our own team to clean, and that just wasn't working as well. You have these you know very sporadic owners; they're not as professionalized as the dry cleaning operators. Um, and that's when Electrolux, $18 billion appliance company, North American headquarters is here in Charlotte, said, hey, we love what you guys are doing. Um, we'll de-risk it for you and we'll help you build your first facility. We'll finance 100% of the equipment. And we could, you know, could de-risk it that way. So we built that store, uh, completely new endeavor for us. It was a walk-in retail laundromat, open seven days a week that we would then bolt on our 2U pickup and delivery volume on top of. And that was, you know, that was a, a big inflection point for us because margins improved significantly, quality control improved significantly. We realized, hey, there's a model here where we can go build multiple of these, partner with Electrolux, layer two on top of it, and that's that's how we scale. So, so just to make sure everybody's clear that's listening, the you also you're you're doing the work for your delivery services, but families are coming in and washing their clothes just like inside of any other retail location. That's exactly right. And yeah. one thing that when, you know, I think like any you know, aspirational set of founders or, you know, startup employees that they want to build something that was better than the, there was, you know, that, that was there previously. And so we put a ton of time and thought into the design of the store, what amenities we'd offer, how do we make this an experience that mirrors what our 2U customers are getting, but for a completely different demographic that might not have access to 2U because it's not as affordable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the stories that we share a lot now, especially as it, you know, and we'll get to it, the, the franchising when we first opened, someone came up to us just, you know, sobbing and, you know, tears hugging us. Um, and at first you're a little taken aback. You're like, hey, what's going on? Why are you, why are you grabbing onto me? And she was just like, no one ever builds anything nice for us. And that was, I think, one of the most 
you know, like rewarding mm-hmm. you know, pieces of feedback that we've ever received. And she was right. We didn't intend, we didn't realize that hey, the lower income population are treated like second class citizens or taking public transportation. The businesses might not be as well kept. And all we did was you know, provide a children's play area, free Wi-Fi, things that you know, I think any person in 2019 would, would like to have at a place <laughs> that they go to. Um, and it made a difference. They noticed it literally brought someone to tears and, yeah. and they appreciate it that much. So well, ho- hopefully the banks take notice and cause they, they notoriously, uh, the, the banking services available to lower income families are abysmal and it's part of what reinforces the cycle of poverty. So I think this is a great, a great story for entrepreneurs out there. You can make money servicing mm-hmm. with the right level of customer support and customer touch and thoughtfulness about your offering. You, you, it can be a very lucrative business for sure. Oh, absolutely. So you have a business predicated on saving people time by delivering clean folded laundry um, so that they can look nice for work <laughs> when they go into the office and, uh, and, and they don't have time at home. So um, <laughs> walk me through the discussions you two were having as you watched the lockdowns being announced. How, how does that unfold from the very, even the first time you heard about COVID, maybe it was the night that Tom Hanks <laughs> announced he had COVID. Maybe it was when NBA canceled that same, their season that same night. Everybody has a different moment where they realized, oh shit, this is something I have to deal with. What was that for you guys? Uh, I, I reflect on this quite a bit because mm-hmm. this is, I mean, building a startup, the first, what was it, three and a half years of it? I mean, it's a roller coaster. It doesn't stop. Uh, and then you add the the COVID element to it. And um, we were just starting to hit like this new stride in energy, which was which was tough to like sit back and even believe this COVID thing was happening. Um, we just had raised that Series A. We were going down this massive uh, plans for expansion. Just ra- launch, doubled our service area in Atlanta. Launched Raleigh. Um, March was on pace to be the biggest month ever, uh, for our business. And, and, uh, I, I don't even remember what point it was. I think it was Trump, uh, on, on camera speaking and, uh, talking about the, the, the level of detail here of, of the, the impact. And, um, it was, uh, it was tough to even just digest going like, okay, we're spending all this money on acquisition. It's working. Uh, we're gearing up for expansion and, and now we have to make some very, very tough decisions. And, mm-hmm. and so it was even tough to just to sit back and think, oh, wow, uh, what's about to come? Um, and, and that's when we started asking ourselves, like, what do we, what do we do? We need to talk to the board. There's no playbook for this. How do we even navigate this without causing uh, chaos or uh, internally? Uh, and that's where really we had to step up as leaders to, to make sure that uh, we were effectively communicating that to everybody. And uh, so I think that was the, the, the biggest part of us challenging or the challenge us as, uh, as leaders in the business. Well, you're lucky to have the board, yeah, <laughs> um, a, a board that can challenge you that way. And I think that's re- very instructive. This is why you have a board because, and why you have advisors and why you have investors, because there are people who you guys are both smart, very, very smart business people. Um, but it's always good to have other smart people around who, who, who care. What, what, what are some specific things or tactical things that the board challenged you guys with during yes, that time? I, I, I reflect back on it and you know, share with others. That I think it was one of the more like, impressive experiences that I've ever had. So they, the board called this meeting. That's, you know, you know, my answer to that, that same question you just asked was our board called a meeting in, it was either late February or early March. It was still pretty early on. There was a few cases in Washington State. Um, 
and they called the meeting and said, hey, guys, this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Um, you should go ahead and shut anything down that's not profitable. It's going to be a cash game for the next year or two until this gets figured out and we see what the world looks like. That is so painful to contemplate when you've just put all this energy. You've just moved your partner down down to Atlanta. Uh, not just, but you know he's, he's relocated to Atlanta. And your team down there. We launched yeah. another market. Um, and so they're saying, you know, shut anything down that's not profitable. And, you know, to your point, it was, well, what, what do you mean? We just launched Raleigh a month ago and it's it's on it's crushing the goals that we had for it. Mm-hmm. Atlanta's going well. Things are, as Dan mentioned, we're hitting the stride. And so Dan and I admittedly left that meeting, you know, may, are they being alarmist? Maybe. And like started to have those like kind of that like devil on your shoulder creep yep. in and be like, hey, maybe, maybe they're wrong. But then, you know, we, you know, we, we talk seriously amongst ourselves and, we have a board for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, one of our board members started Pamlico Capital in town. Another is the CEO of a top five marketing agency in the country. Another is a CFO and president of Spanx. And so collectively, this is this group of incredibly intelligent people, you know, way smarter than Dan and I, way more experienced than Dan and I. And so you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, Am I <laughs> is the devil on my shoulder really like worth not listening to the advice that um, they have? And, you know, let's say they're wrong you make this decision tree, right? Like they give you this advice to shut it down. You don't listen and they're right. You've lost all the goodwill that you have with your board. You listen to them and they're right. You've made a good decision. You, you save the company time and money, et cetera. Um, and you know, of the other two, of those four options in total, that one really presented itself as the one that made the most sense. If they're wrong and we shut it down, we can always turn it back on. We have a lot of the customer base there. They will understand. And you had um, a, healthy balance sheet at this point because you were right. coming out of arrays where you didn't over deploy your capital and right and that's well, i think we had to look at those as as fortunate opportunities for us to unfortunately have to take that step back but we have some of the things working for us to persevere power through and give us a new sort of uh, breadth of energy to reinvent ourselves and think okay this is we need to look at this as just another challenge to overcome and an opportunity and really an opportunity um and, and i think we we did just that after really reflecting back on it um although it was probably the one of the hardest things to hear um and feeling like you take these steps back after just taking three steps forward which is tough in a startup um and so I think we, we, we did that well, and, and now it's can time to execute again. Yeah. So so in full disclosure, I invested in you guys back in 2019, and so, so I'm copied on the investor communications, and you sent out a note, and reading it, uh, you know, there's – there's some alarming talk in there just about, hey, we're shutting shutting these growth avenues down. We're just in survival mode. It, it is. It's alarming because even as an investor, you're you're picturing, you know, the the I, you know, Alex and Dan ringing the bell <laughs> <laughs> on Nasdaq, right? <laughs> and now all of a sudden, it's no. We are in a fight for our survival, and we are going to do whatever we have to do to maximize the the value of this thing even and i remember i think you had word and correct me if i'm wrong that was if we have to shut down charlotte that's fine we'll we'll keep the money in the bank and when things come back we'll 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 come Mm -hmm. you know we'll we'll come uh come back and, and revisit things which is it's just a mindset that that i think you have to have and it's a testament to the board and to to you guys as as business people and leaders um, that, that you were willing to take that stance because it's not the same thing 
as what you're thinking three months earlier, six months earlier, when you're thinking, how do I get to 30 cities? It's just mm -hmm. a very different mindset. So as, as an investor, that made me feel very good r reading it. Um, can you tell me how did other investors react when, when they get that note? Yeah. So we, you know, I wasn't sure what to expect. I think expect, I think that was one of the things that I was personally nervous about was, you know, what kind of backlash, if any, are we going to get? Um, and when we talked to the board, you know, after we made the decision, preserve cash, you know, they gave us, I think a few weeks to, to wind certain things down. And then we, we talked again, we were talking pretty frequently at this time. Um, and they said, all right, now that you've, you know, you've winded the things down that needed to be winded down, take the next month or so to really think about what's the next move and consider everything. And they challenged us, you know, do you pivot into a completely different vertical? Do you return capital? Do you, I mean, everything was on the table at that point. Um, you know, especially that conversation around, do we, do we sell, you know, what we have left that's of value for, you know, for pennies on the dollar and then return capital or do we reinvent ourselves or do we stay the course and just hunker down? Um, and that exercise in and of itself was incredibly valuable, but also tough. Like you're starting to look at these things and you have to be objective about it. You have a fiduciary responsibility to investors, your team, the board. Um, and, but you're still so emotionally attached to this thing. And so it is hard to try to separate the two and, and make a, a sound decision, but you have to do it. It's what we signed up for. And, and I think th this is very instructive. We shouldn't wait for a crisis as entrepreneurs to force this type of thinking. It's something we should constantly be doing. I don't know if you guys know Garth Moulton and Chris yeah. Alligan, but they had, they created a company called other screen. They made, they built a fantastic team. They put, they, they went and raised money from um, investors, a VC in Austin. And, uh, and, and they, they had a realization that we missed the mark. Like they, and they had that, they, they did what you guys just described, but they are both very successful serial entrepreneurs and they, they do that. They did that exercise regularly. And I think it is something we should ask. What, what are we doing? Should we be in this business? Should we, and their decision was to return capital. And I think they, if anything, it increased, <laughs> it increased their aura in, in the eyes of everybody in the entrepreneurial and the investment community, because they made the mature decision, which was to, to, to return capital. And I think it's good. We should be considering those options. You guys obviously made a different decision. So what was the, de what was the decision that you guys came to coming out of that exercise? So when we, when we kind of narrowed it down to the next, you know, the two or three options that we have in front of us, we presented those to the board. Um, one was to return capital. One was, you know, Hey, we, there's something here in this real estate asset that we have. Our laundromat has grown 20% throughout the pandemic, throughout COVID when most retail businesses are down 15 to 25% on average. I mean, all these retail businesses, restaurants, shops, et cetera, but ours is, you know, people are flocking to, it's growing. It's so it's validation that it's pandemic proof, recession proof, laundromats have been a good place to, you know, to park cash for a while. Um, could we, is there a world where we start to franchise package what we've learned building this location, the relationships we have with Electrolux, the technology we have, and then the kicker being all this volume that we could bring to these laundromats by way of our two, you pickup and delivery service. So the analogy is, you know, you know, could we sell McDonald's or Chick-fil-A franchises and then to you be the DoorDash or Uber mm -hmm. Eats or Postmates equivalent in this vertical? Could we do something similar? Um, and so we shared that with the board. Um, they said, Hey, returning capital is going to be, you know, people are going to lock in some sort of loss. We, you guys are clearly passionate about it. You guys aren't sitting here saying, Hey, we're ready to you know, hang up the, the Jersey and do mm -hmm. something else. And you guys are passionate. Uh, Go back know. to NY. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like you guys are still passionate. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, passionate <laughs> about it. And 
if there's anyone that's going to figure out this space, it's going to be you guys. And, you know, we have, you have our full, you know, support and, and every, you know, and everything that you guys want to go and do next. So if, if you believe there's an opportunity here, which it sounds like there is, we should go after franchising. Um, and so that's when we made the decision to do it, shared it with the investors. And that's when I was, ex- you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to get emails or calls saying, Hey, why didn't you return capital? And our lead investor called a week later he started the call with, hey, Alex, I know this isn't what you want to hear. And I was like, oh, great. Here comes the return capital comment, and we're going to have to you know, reconsider that. And he said, what a blessing. Uh, I, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I'd go that far. But um, his, point, his point was that he's like, I think this is actually a much more scalable model than you first pitched us. We're all incredibly excited about the opportunity of you going out and building these, this system of real estate you know, assets, essentially, that are going to fuel the growth of 2U and not only now are you constrained to comp- uh, con- you know constrained by cities that only 2U would work Nashville, Austin, Dallas now you can build these locations in Winston-Salem, Gastonia mm-hmm. um, and you're also servicing the whole spectrum now you've got this lower income um, demographic that benefits and thrives from the retail locations you're building um, you know college kids as well and in, in, in college cities that these could work in but then you also have the more affluent family who's using the 2U service and you're now pairing and marrying both together, have control of your own destiny that someone else is essentially going to um, help finance the growth of because these franchisees will own them and partake in that, that revenue share of, of a revenue stream that we weren't planning on growing ourselves yep. to begin with. So, it, so it sounds like pivoting to this model, if anything, you think that you can scale faster by, by doing this. Yeah, because as we were in Atlanta and Raleigh, we were realizing we're going into other people's laundromats and we're having the same issue, even though it's our own team using these assets. The laundromats are difficult to work with. They want you in there at weird hours. Um, they're not laid out and designed for our purpose, whereas mm-hmm. our store here in Charlotte's very thoughtful and intentional about why it was built the way it was, the square footage, the layout, the machine mix, et cetera. And you don't get that unless you're building it yourself. And so as we started to do it in Atlanta, you realize these these aren't cheap. The equipment's expensive. If you're going to own the land, it's even more expensive. And even if you're not going to own the land, it's 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 an expensive build. Um, and so is there a way that we can, and we don't want to raise venture capital to finance real estate. We're not big enough to be bankable to take on all sorts of debt. So eventually we're going to hit this plateau anyway through the SBA that we just can't build more of these on our own anyway. And so franchising presents itself as a good opportunity to give up a portion of the business that we had no intention of you know, really getting into from the beginning, it's kind of a means to an end for the 2U business. Um, and, and so really presented this awesome solution that benefits everyone. 2U gets what it needs to scale and grow pretty efficiently. Um, the franchisees are able to make money and put their, you know, their dollars into a, a good investment that's fairly safe, pretty passive. Um, and then our investors and our employees get to benefit from the value that's created between pairing the two together. That, that's awesome. And, and the store is, is really cool. I'm, I'm, toured it with um an investor that i i think i introduced you to but yep. um and the the closest thing i can compare it to is what carmax did for used car sales right you go into a carmax and there's way more inventory than any other used car um any other used car uh, lot that you would go on to um the process is transparent there's just a lot of benefits to um, to, 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 to the way they thought about how retail should work in CarMax. CarMax is a former client of mine, and it was interesting because, as a rule, they will not um, hire salespeople who have any history in cars. because, And they may have changed their mind as they got to massive scale, but that was one of the real early tenants is that car retailing is fundamentally broken, and if you're part of the existing animal, <laughs> you're part of the problem. Um, 
when you look for franchisees, and I want to talk in a little bit more depth later, but um, but I'm curious, are you going to look for people who have operated laundromats before? Because it, the experience is so completely different. I can't imagine that knowing <laughs> much about laundromats is really all that helpful to running one of your stores. Yeah, I, right now as I'm owning and, and running the the internal sort of sales process of identifying these owners, uh, it's, it's clear that we're now enabling a new type of owner to come in and, and operate who hasn't really been educated on this model, but is looking to diversify outside of, uh, uh other income streams, whether it's the stock market or, uh, an, another type of franchise business. Um, this is, a, a through the pandemic, we we're able to kind of check the boxes on this as an essential business to the, to, to our economy now. Um, it, it's a semi absentee model that doesn't require you to spend 20, 30, 40 hours of your time a week on it. Uh, and it's an exciting return, uh, if you look at the, the fundamental, the fundamentals of the business. And so we've been, we're, we're now enabling a new type of owner to come in and, and invest and leverage our expertise, our operational playbooks, mm-hmm. uh, something that we're incredibly confident, confident in, uh, and supporting these franchisees and, and, uh, it ultimately is a win-win when you're bringing these types of sophisticated investors in using our operational excellence, marrying the two together. Uh, and you kind of create this backbone that now to you can scale on top of. And so, so that's been industry in- interesting uh, compared to a lot of other laundromat owners that we've interacted with along the way who are more narrow minded. They don't want to make change. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want innovation. They don't want to use technology. Um, they don't want to make their business harder to run. Uh, when in reality you may, you may have this learning curve of making it a little bit harder, but over time it's going to become easier as you adopt uh, our processes, the tech technology. Uh, so I'm excited. Well, the to other thing that you didn't, that. that you didn't mention, but I assume has to be a big deal is I, I recall from earlier conversations with Alex that you guys, the relationship with Electrolux is hard to overstate the importance of that because they're, they're giving you data on where you, I mean, laundry room, they helped you figure out the exact location to go to. Right. And I can't imagine that any franchisee going out on their own or any laundromat owner gets access to that that kind of data and they get that automatically by working with with you guys yep yeah i mean it's part of the value we're going to add in in the relationships is i mean our aspirations and our vision is to uh, be a national brand mm-hmm. be the first national brand and and with that i mean we're, we're establishing those long-term relationships we're we're selling that vision we're betting on that vision and and uh, through that you're making these connections that ultimately uh, add a ton of value to these these operators and and you can uh, pass that on and and just add that additional value as you as you scale almost like an agency does uh, um, bringing on and and sort of maximizing their economies of scale so out of curiosity because you you mentioned you may be opening up in smaller cities that you may not have considered before because you have a great franchisee do you think that that means does that simplify your expansion plans for the delivery business because it's hey we've got this retail franchisee here who's doing really well that you know, the delivery business, we feel comfortable that we can build a delivery. Obviously it's a different demographic, but does that help you in the process of figuring out where to open up the delivery service next? We, yes, yes and no. Um, I mean, our hypothesis right now is to identify these potential owners who 
want to open and build multiple locations that may want to benefit from the exclusive relationship that we have uh, with to you and, mm-hmm. and Laundry Lab, our franchise model, uh, where we're looking for an owner in Raleigh who wants to open up three of them, who uh, we can leverage all three of their locations at scale, uh, opening up that market. Um, and, and so I, I think it excites those types of individuals. The, the two opportunities that we have are, are, are somewhat different where an owner can come in and, and just run a day-to-day laundromat, be very hands-off, semi-absentee, uh, but that the person that wants to maximize their their investment and may want to spend a little bit more time in the business can take advantage of that pickup and delivery model. They'll be a little bit more hands-on, have to hire a, a few more employees. So I think it it clearly kind of delineates the two opportunities when you're when you're looking for that alignment of that investor who, who wants to pick up and delivery as well. Um, but it'll be interesting to learn over the next 12 months what happens. Yeah, that is interesting. So when you when you look at how you monitor, do you give a, a percentage of the volume for the, I mean, if this is proprietary, please don't don't feel obligated to tell me, but it, somehow you've got to incentivize them then because they've got to hire more staff. Yep. Do, do they just get a, a percentage of the earnings on on that? Do they get some ownership in, in the in the the delivery service how do, how do you guys think about incentivize incentivizing that behavior so traditionally laundromats you know they're they're making money on people coming in putting quarters in swiping mm-hmm. their cards vending over-the-counter sales and then they also have over-the-counter wash dry fold so if you live near a laundromat you can come in drop your bag of you know of sheets and gym clothes off and they'll do it for a dollar a pound and so all that we're really doing is going to them and saying hey we'll bring you thousands of these over-the-counter wash dry fold orders you don't have to go out and get them you don't have to deal with a hundred different people. It's one, you know, one brand to you coming to you with a, a, a van or two full of these these clothes, and you just need to process them. And so, really, the, the incentive for them is: Do I want a laundromat that has seventeen to thirteen percent utilization on the equipment that I spent seven hundred grand on, or do I want twenty to thirty percent utilization on that that same equipment? Um, and I think the majority of you know inve- of investors and of franchisees are going to say, Hey, I want a more utilized laundromat because it's going to be more profit, more cash flow, more money in my pocket. Um, otherwise these assets are just going to sit here and, and, and not be, not be used. So it's really a, an asset utilization play. And, um, our belief is that most will understand that and say, Hey, I'll hire the, you know, the, the store manager, the other four to six frontline employees to, to process this volume. So if you were running, uh, laundry room as a laundro lab and you you were a franchisee and maybe you already it sounds like you maybe already think of it that way and that that's dan's role in this uh, one of his roles in this um <laughs> but it, if if you were to, to think of it that way what percentage of the business of the laundry room is the delivery service here in charlotte yeah, so the, the first location that we built is a little atypical because it is 6,300 square feet. Mm-hmm. The franchise model, the locations will be anywhere from 2,500 on the very low end up to 4,000 square feet on the high end. And so they're really purpose-built for maximizing the, the cash flow for that franchisee. Um, the reason we have that extra 20, you know, 2,000 to 2,500 square feet at the laundry room is we're trying to do, we were, you know, the initial thought was we'll do the entire city of Charlotte's laundry here. Mm. Um and, and so they'll be, you know, less of a, of a, of a footprint, but they'll be able to handle still you know, a fourth of what we do here in, in Charlotte today. So they'll, instead of doing $2.2 million in the back door for via to you, they'll be able to add in an additional you know, 300K to 500K in revenue um, to their, to their franchise business. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense actually. So um, do you think, 
having your app, you know, the, the, the delivery service, that whole service strengthens the customer experience in the store or are they two different, two different experiences and two different channels? It's two, two very different experiences because mm-hmm. the people going into the laundromat traditionally aren't using the pickup and delivery. They probably live within a one to three mile square radius of the physical location. Um, so again, the only may, maybe they do some p- mobile payment processing, but they're really not interacting with the app right. at all. Okay. And we're going to we're working on some cool stuff now for the franchisee experience. So for the Laundra Lab brand, the retail brick and mortar brand, um, the franchisees are going to benefit from a suite of tools that show them machine utilization. They can quickly change prices um, and it'll eventually permeate into the customer experience where they're using you know, a mobile app. Right now we have one that's, you know, it's basically a. Uh, off-the-shelf version that Electrolux has built with, uh, you know, in partnership with another uh, company, Laundrylux, that, that that we're getting access to and that our customers are getting access to. But we want to come in and eventually have this suite that's integrated and, mm-hmm. um, you know, proprietary from the, the Laundry Lab experience. I think the thing to talk about there is, though, is still at the end of the day, it's a, it's a tool that allow that provides convenience to, to the customer. Um, when you're talking about getting your laundry done, whether you're the... The, the the lower end or the higher end of, end of the spectrum i mean uh, the tool still functions the ability to add convenience and um, convenience matters to both of those types of customers in a different way and and uh, i think that's what we're really excited about bringing sort of the innovation to both of those spaces because uh, it's 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 newer for the laundromat customer um they're they're used to going in and pumping quarters in but now mm-hmm. they have the ability uh, I believe even our app takes EBT and, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of other things. That, oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it enables them to uh, uh, maximize their, their cash flow and, and, mm-hmm. and convenience. And uh, what we find a lot of our laundromat customers doing, the technology of their, their mobile app allows for notifications when their washer is done or their dryer is done. So we, we find a lot of our customers will come in, start a wash, go run their errands, get a notification, come back, go run another errand. And, and it's just that convenience. Hopefully that. take their dog over to skip town. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. No, it, it's interesting. There was a story that, um, that Alex told me at, at some point, he showed me a 150 pound, um, uh, washing machine, which I knew nothing about the poundage of washing machines. But after you told me, I noticed any laundromat, I always look and they always have it listed. We have 30, 40, 50, and 60, but nothing approaching 150. And I think also you guys worked with Electrolux to re-engineer the foundation so that this thing could spin 50% faster. And you were thinking strictly, I think you were thinking strictly at the time about, well, if, if we need to pump volume through here, we're going to want these bigger machines and we're going to want them to spin faster, which saves a bunch of time. And I think you were surprised, Alex, that you had customers using those machines. It turns out everybody, <laughs> no matter their income level, wants to save time, right? Yep. And uh, and so I think that's a great example of where the de- the delivery business enables a, qu- a, a, a a scale and a scope that that you probably might not be able to achieve without the delivery business that actually benefits the retail customers mm-hmm. as well. Yep. I mean, absolutely. The machines spin faster, so it means less time in the dryer, and so they're in and out of there in you know 50 minutes instead of an hour and a half. And at the end of the day, people don't want to sit in a laundromat or anywhere yeah. that's not their home or their friend's place or wherever they they, they want to be spending their time. They don't want to sit in a laundromat for an hour and a half. Yeah. And then from an owner perspective, I mean, you're you're saving on utilities and you're getting more customers using the machines. If if one customer's taking up those two machines for 50 minutes, uh, uh, I mean, you're, you're adding more customers, the ability to, to leverage those machines and maximize revenue, which is uh, benefits both 
customer and owner. That's great. Do you think at some point other sophisticated laundromat owners start to pick up on this and start to adopt some of your practices or do they have just such a good business that's shooting fish in a barrel that they don't feel the need to to try some of these innovations you get a and i think this is what's exciting about the space in general is the majority is very much this is how it's always but this is how it's always been done this is what we do we're not changing the formula it works leave us alone with your innovation uh, which i mean to entrepreneurs is hey this is right for disruption there's this kind of legacy way of thinking and then the ones that are more pro- more progressive and you know wanting to adapt and learn you know through this pickup and delivery offering i think that is the topic that's talked about the most is I've already maximized revenue for this one to you know, three mile square radius around my store. How do I go out and get more of it? And they want to do pickup and delivery for gyms, Airbnbs, yoga studios, you know, dentist offices, et cetera. Um, but they're not sure how do I staff it? How do I, you know, how do I even do the routing? I mean, we, when we first started, it wasn't cause we weren't, you know, technical in nature, but we, there weren't tools for us to go do this. So we were doing it in MapQuest and, <laughs> made a spreadsheet that automated the the pickup uh, routes based on your day. And most laundromat owners aren't going to go find a Routific or a, this off the shelf software. Cause they're, they're not, they're not used to using tools mm-hmm. like that. And so they're, they have no idea where to start. So our thought is these tools that we're building that are built for the laundromat industry, they're going to want to either license this. They're going to want to convert to a laundry lab franchise just to get access to these things. Um, and that's an exciting opportunity for, for us as well. So, what did you learn about each other in a time of crisis that surprised you? I'll ask you first, Dan, not to put you on the spot, but <laughs> what did you learn about Alex that surprised you during this time of crisis? <laughs> um, that he, I'm going to pat him on the back here and <laughs> boost his ego, but I, I think that he's just, he's meant to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I mean, I learn a lot from Alex, always have, uh, he's always pushed me to be my best. And um, I think he looked at, he always looks at this a little bit more practically and I'm a little bit more emotional mm-hmm. when it comes to these, some of these harder decisions. And, and so I think he really challenged me to level up as a leader during that time. And it just gave me more confidence in him that I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to level up. I'm going to be there right alongside him and um, go through these tough decisions with him um, and, and ultimately be a better leader at the end of it. Um, I think if you break down what we're what we're really here for, what keeps us motivated, and I mean, it's meeting people like yourself. I mean, we've been able to surround ourselves with awesome, awesome people who have gotten us to be where we are, and uh, we don't take that for granted. And uh, I know we both want to be incredible leaders one day, whether it's we get that that stamp here or the next thing and the next thing, and and so that just really uh, solidified confidence, more confidence in in being there right alongside Alex and during a a time that no one has experienced before and all that we could do is take the 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 feedback and uh, the recommendations from people who have been through like similar things uh but spin it in our into our own and and uh, communicate that uh, effectively internally and and i think we did a really good job with that if you were to ask our our employees and yes we had to make tough decisions but um everybody understood why um they were logical um, and, and so um, it's, it's interesting that you point that out because <clears throat> I think character is most often, um, you know, we, we shine a light on character when we go through bad times. It's very easy to be a good vendor when times are good and everybody's making orders, but it's when it's when something breaks that you really understand the character of a person or a company. 
and, and I always tell um, the people that I work with, when things are bad, I'm like, this is how we shine. We make it right in a bad time. And it sounds like, I think you could say the same thing about leadership qualities. It's easy to be a good leader when times are good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it, I don't want to discount how important it is to be a good leader when it's good, but it really, really matters a lot when times are bad. It's just a, and, and I think that's when you learn the most about people. So that's interesting that you saw that in Alex. Um, now you got to follow that one up, Alex. I'm interested <laughs> to see how you're going uh, <laughs> to try to top that. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it was anything that I was surprised by. I think it was maybe a continuation of something that I was originally surprised by when we first started. And that was you know, after I'd sold Wake Wash, I tried to do you know, what is now to you with someone else at EY. So someone that's you know, with people that were you know, smarter than both Dan and I, you mm -hmm. know, have a work ethic, have all that. And as soon as, you know, one school, because we were trying to go after universities instead of cities when we, the second iteration, when we tried it, and we had one school say no, and those people were, I don't know if this, I don't know if this is going to work. We just, one yeah. no? Are you kidding? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> one customer doesn't work for and you're, you're done, you're out. After like, we'd spent a lot of time talking about it, working on it. And it was like one school said no and you're out. And, you know, Dan, on the other hand, was originally helping us um, build the website and then got more and more attached to it you know, like the idea and was willing to do all the things that I shared at the beginning of the call, quit his job, pack up his life, yep. move down here. And so that didn't stop when the pandemic happened. We had to make these hard decisions. It wasn't, I don't know if I can do this. I got to, you know, I just moved down to Atlanta. I'm done. I'm doing the next thing. It was, it was, you know, like you said, you probably got a little bit more emotional. I got emotional about it. It was tough. <laughs> um, but it was very quickly, all right, yeah, I can uh, I can move again back from Atlanta to Charlotte. Who <laughs> now his his now wife is down there. He's had her move like four times, and it wasn't. Nope, I'm done. I'm out. I, I give up. I quit. It was always hey, this is tough, but we're gonna figure it out. And so like just that loyalty and willing to persevere. And so again, I, I guess I wasn't surprised. I, I guess I continue to be surprised by it. Eventually, yeah. everyone has their limit, and <laughs> I wasn't sure when that was gonna hit, and it didn't hit. And and that's the kind of person that that Dan is. Is Hey, I'm gonna figure this out. We're gonna either t take this ship to the pros the, the promised land, yep. or we're gonna go down sinking with it, and we're not gonna give up on it or give up on each other. So I'm smiling as you tell this story because, in as we were growing level, Chris and I would we'd pull up after something really shitty happened. Because uh, let's be honest, it happens all the time. Yep. Something bad happens to your business, and every time we'd sit down before we've had a chance to debrief on it like we've we've sent the email hey this is what's going on we got to deal with it let's sit down and have a meeting and one or he, he or i would both um just quip like let's just shut down we're done we can't overcome this you know and it's it is funny to think it was a running joke for us because there's so many things that could make you shut down but you don't and when when you hear about somebody i think that's the difference between a founder and an employee is that the employee will give up much earlier than than a founder will. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 that's interesting that, that 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 you were able to appreciate that because your second go around, <laughs> you know, you you, you you saw that firsthand. Now, to me, what's interesting is that you still need people who are top performing, motivated, high work ethic employees. And I think that's a hard part as a leader is to be able to separate the two and say, well, Alex and Dan are putting up with a whole bunch of bullshit. Employees don't necessarily put up with the same level of bullshit that founders will, but it doesn't mean that they can't be employees. It just means they can't be a founder. And I, and I think that's something that I, 
I've struggled with in businesses is you, it's so refreshing when you see the founder mentality. And so it, it, you can't let it crush your soul, but it always does. I'm like, why is this person thinking this way? This isn't, you know, <laughs> but it tells you they're not a founder. They're not a partner. They're not, they're not, uh, they don't have skin in the game the way that, that, that the partner does. I think that was awesome to experience too. And it's cliche, but you know, people say lead by example. And I think when him and I did put our heads together and you know, behind closed doors, of course, we can be emotional. This is mm-hmm. tough. This is hard. What do we do? No one's ever faced this. And you almost yeah. want to find these reasons to, you know, discount what's going on. Hey, it's the environment around me. But then you realize at the end of the day, we're in control of our destiny. And we have a team that's looking up to us and looking for guidance. And so we need to come out. We need to be as strong as we can. And, and, and but also vulnerable and, and mm-hmm. allow them to be empathetic to what's going on. And that's exactly what happened. It was amazing to me to see the team rally at a time that you know, we're having to make layoffs, we're having to shut markets down, the world's like, you know, people are freaking <laughs> out. I mean, I mean, this has yeah. been going on for over a year now. Like, yep. and the team was immediately ready to, to go. We believe in the, you know, the vision as we always have, and we believe in the direction that we're going. And this is just a different way to get there. It's the same end. Um, and so that's been, that was awesome to experience too, just to see those employees, as you mentioned, who might not have as much skin in the game, say, I believe in these guys. I believe mm-hmm. in what they're telling me. Um, because we believed it and, and, and that's what's important is to be authentic and, and to be transparent and vulnerable, especially at times that are, are tricky like this. We had to just spin it in, and not even really spin it because it, it is what it is. It was, it was, it was just another challenge that we mm-hmm. had to turn into an opportunity. And I, I think we, we were fortunate enough to quickly, I think quickly make that uh, decision and, and communicate it effectively. And, and like Alex said, I mean, everybody was bought in. It was it was sort of the same vision, just a different means mm-hmm. uh, to get there. And but it made sense. And and so the, I think that just built up more confidence in in that smaller team. And um, looking back on it, I mean, that's what I'm most excited about is what's been the most fun in this whole thing is is that is like that really early days of grinding with this with the small uh, small team and everyone's wearing multiple hats and we're back at that level. And yes, I want to get back to. Uh, being big and multi uh, hundred million dollar company and, and we and we will get there uh, but this is just that really exciting opportunity to kind of build build up uh, what was exciting in the in the early days again that that's great um and you guys will get there I, I, I can tell already who, who knows how long it is but hopefully with the vaccine and uh and, and some of the more promising numbers that are coming out it's uh, you know the the macro environment moves in the direction that, that you need to go um just out of curiosity, did you guys go after any PPP money? Because you had a pretty significant payroll at, at, at the time of, of COVID. Yeah, we did. So we, you know, through the investor network again, through the founder network here in Charlotte and, and beyond, I mean, people are always sharing really helpful information. And we were you know, fortunate enough to benefit from both rounds of PPP. Mm-hmm. We've always done the R&D tax credit. We've always, you know, we're now we're doing the, the ERC credit. So, I mean, every bit of relief out there i think you'd be foolish you're doing a disservice to your employees your investors yourself if you don't go take advantage of the you know the packages that are out there to help for this exact reason whether it's a pandemic or it's a r&d tax credit that you know that's existed for a while um you have to take advantage of it i agree i agree for sure um what about operating the store during the lockdown? What extra precautions did you have to, to take to keep the thing operating? Or did, did your operations have to change as a result of the pandemic? Yes, I mean, I would want to use this you know, opportunity as a time to, to, to gas someone up a little bit. Beck Miller, this guy on our team, he 
I think it was even in February, he was like, hey, we need to, this is doomsday, we need to order masks and hand sanitizer. And I remember me and our head of operations at the time were, okay, yeah, like we need to get some <laughs> of this stuff. And, you know, we, we allocated a budget to it and got it. And then I'm sure enough, you know, a month later, people are storming Walmarts and Amazon sold out and all of this this you know PPE is gone. He got you to buy toilet paper too, hopefully. <laughs> so I mean, he he checked all the boxes and got it. So thankfully, I mean, from the beginning, we were doing social distancing before that was a term that you know the CDC even put out. He was you know Beck was on. Hey, we should have folding spaced out by each you know bay, have wow, one in between wow. people, and so he was like the the godfather of of making sure that the the place was safe and we didn't miss a beat. Again, we grew throughout the whole thing, and I think a lot of that can be attributed to you know, his foresight, making this experience, um, what we've always tried to do at the laundry room is, is make it an elevated customer centric experience. And I think that's part of the reason why the laundry room grew instead of declined is that people recognize they actually care about me. This isn't about squeezing every penny they can out of me. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the other laundromat owners, this is, Hey, if your stuff's in the washer and you're waiting, wait in your car or the benches outside, (laughs) we want to try to be safe and not, you know, because there's people in there, there's a lot of people waiting and congregating and, at the time people didn't know you know they knew what they didn't know and they weren't sure is this going to spread by me sitting and standing here or is this not and so we tried to take the approach of let's just be safe and people were, i think appreciated it yeah it was just another way to differentiate ourselves i mean mm-hmm. laund- laundromats are i mean it's a competitive market there's thirty-five thousand laundromats across the you the have country. one right across the street <laughs> from, from another yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, it was just a way for us to differentiate ourselves and show that we were there to build an experience for our customers and we gave out we decided to give out free masks and sanitizer where where others either didn't have it or would charge for it and and we just wanted to set that bar high to to differentiate ourselves and ultimately knowing that it would benefit us from a business perspective and it did and now we were fortunate that laundromats were deemed an essential business. And so we were able to remain open and, and adhere to a lot of those guidelines and then quickly get back to uh, business and, and setting that, setting that standard. And, and, and now I think that's ultimately what's going to di- help differentiate us in, in uh, a franchising world and, and seeing that the success that we had during the pandemic, uh, but also um how we we implement those those processes very quickly and others can benefit from kind of following those same things so so i imagine because it's not just the customers that benefit from those policies but i've got to imagine that your employees see that because it's stressful you're being told to go work in a laundromat and you're or a grocery store or any other um essential uh, um, work category can you maybe speak to how much that helped the uncertainty for your employees, the, the policies that they're seeing, or is it more about the leadership or is it a combination of everything? You know, I think it was a, a combination of all of the above. One of the first things we did was we opted to pay our frontline employees more that were at the laundromat, you know, working with customers, um, you know, being around dirty clothes, all these you mm-hmm. know, germs that we didn't know how long it lasted on clothes, on metal, on plastics at the time. And we know, we know a lot more now. We wanted to pay them more to incentive, you know, to to incentivize them, but also reward them for taking that that additional risk. Um, they knew about the policies that we're implementing. Um, they knew that we had a plan in the event that there was a positive case mm-hmm. at the facility. So you had no positive cases at the facility. We, we eventually did, and okay. again, we put our policy in place. We had someone come out and clean and de- you know sanitize. We were mm-hmm. shut down for a few days, and I think just knowing that we were even thinking about it and considering them, and, and mm-hmm. it wasn't just reaction you know it wasn't a reactive measure it wasn't a uh, we don't care we'll figure it out if it happens kind of thing we did have these proactive 
plans in place. And I think uh, I'd like to think I want I want to go ask them now. And in hindsight, hey, did you appreciate that, or was it you know how did you how did you, you feel about it? But it, no one's left, no one's quit. That's so great. I feel like they value it. I feel like they appreciated it. Um, and it was just it felt like it was the right thing to do. Well, the other, the other thing I think we did that we found an opportunity on is just educate, like watching consumer behavior change and educating our frontline workers on ultimately the importance of their job. I mean, we were, yes, it's a, it's a luxury service, but we were finding more and more healthcare workers using our service because they didn't have time to do their, their ah, laundry. And so like, interesting. you're still saving the sanitization component ultimately came in. Um, the, the temperature of the dryers uh, actually killed, uh, it, it operated at such a high temperature that it would kill those viruses. And so you weren't exposed to those. And, and so there's a lot of educational components, not only our process and how it helped save people time, um, but just even giving those people their time so they could go fight this, this, this craziness and, and uh, uh, um, understand how that they're going to uh, change their new norm whether it's a teacher who has to now do virtual learning or teaching and they don't have any t- as much time. And so using that as an educational component as well to reiterate how important the vision still was uh, to why we were there cleaning people's clothes. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's, 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 it's kind of reframing your purpose. You're, you're able to reframe because there is, it, it is, it's, it's very true that, Hey, these, this has become a very important service for a very important a group of people that that that's an awesome lesson and i think that again covid created an opportunity to do that but it's something we can all do in our businesses all the time and we shouldn't wait for a crisis to to do these type of things and figure out what is the right way to frame the mission for my employees because they what it sounds like is you've created you, you you were able to articulate a mission for your employees that they could take some pride in hey we're we're helping this economy in this new norm or whatever this is that we're dealing with, we're helping people to, to cope with it. And that, that, that's great. So, and, and I know that we're getting, um, coming up on an hour here. So I want to be careful with your time. I've only got a couple more things I'd like to ask you guys. If you were to quantify it as a percentage, and again, I don't want to get into any proprietary details, but how much would you say your business has recovered from the COVID hit? Are you better than where you were? Are you back to where you were? you know, wh- wh- how do you think about quantifying that? Yeah. So laundry, the, the at home pickup and delivery laundry is back to above pre COVID levels. So that that's continued to grow and thrive, which was honestly shocking. We thought people being home, you know, they mm-hmm. can throw a load in while they're working. And, and turns out these families, you know, they're now playing babysitter and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, meal prepper and work and they're working they're, so now they're wearing three or four hats in the day and it, it's, homeschool it's teacher homeschool teacher <laughs> all the above and so they're looking for as much help as they ever, ever by the way if we don't as a society appreciate our teachers after this we never will <laughs> no yeah and so that, that's exactly it is is people wanted that help more than ever and and so we've seen the laundry continue to be outsourced our retail business has grown as mm-hmm. i mentioned in you know 20 plus percent the dry cleaning has really been the drag on our businesses it was you know half of our our revenue and that's down, you know, at one point it was down 70%. People wow. aren't going into the office. They're not wearing blouses, dresses, suits. Um, and that's returned to not normal, but it, it's you know, still down 30, 30%, 30%, 40%. And I don't think that's going to come back until offices start opening up again. And people are going back. And even then, who knows, are there any long you know, lasting implications of people who are just like CPA firms that are all in jeans now because mm-hmm. they're all used to it. And it turns out we, we don't have to, but I don't know. I see people on Zoom calls wearing button downs and slacks. So I, I have hope that 
once you get back into an office, there's going to be peer pressure and <laughs> people are going to get back into dressing up a little bit. I, I mean, I think people have an innate need to dress up and look nicely. So we'll, we'll figure out an excuse either way. I right. suspect. <laughs> it was a nice break. You know? I saw this tweet and I forget who it was from, but they were saying, hey, for the people that think that the world isn't going to return back to exactly where it was, here's what's going to happen is you're going to have an investment bank or you know a bank trying to win a deal. Everyone's going to think you can do it remote because that's what we've been used to for the last year and a half. And then one day, some sharp up-and-coming banker is going to get on a plane and fly to that client and meet them in person and wear a suit and shake their hand, and they're going to win the deal because they did that, and then everyone's going to follow suit. I agree. And I, I read <laughs> that, and I was like, okay, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're going to be fine because that, that makes sense. I mean, nothing can replace the face-to-face face -face human interaction. I mean, being here now talking to you mm -hmm. is way better than us on three separate computers trying to talk through it. Oh, yeah, d d I mean, I've had to do a lot more Zoom interviews, and hands down, the ones where you're in face, you know, in person, uh, there's there's just no comparison to it for sure. Um, so hopefully that does come back. So how much further do you think your business recovers in 2021? I mean, do you do, do you think that this is is a big year for you guys, or is it more just set the stage for 2022 to be a, a, a big return to growth mode? I think more of the latter. I think this year is really, you know, Dan kind of brought it up earlier is that to you in Charlotte is, you know, is doing you know, just about as well as it ever has done. It's this new pivot into franchising. We're almost mm -hmm. a, a start, you know, a complete garage, you know, <laughs> floor startup again. And I think the success of that is really going to be what is going to be what dictates the answer to that question is if franchising takes off and there's product market fit, I, I think there's an opportunity to be bigger than we've ever been this year. If it's a slower burn and it you know it takes this year to build foundation, the next year is the year that franchising really pops. Then I'll say it would be would be next year. Awesome. So uh, we've kind of hit on this, but one of the things I realized during the process watching you guys is that you, you know, you you'd raised a nice chunk of money. Um, you started to deploy it carefully, looking to create options and optionality and opportunities. And when, when the crisis hit, you quickly cut off that, that small spend already. Um, and obviously that has served you well. Um, it, it's easy to imagine how bad it would have gotten if you hadn't raised the cash or if you deployed it quickly, relying on that next round of funding that a lot of entrepreneurs tend to. And probably the folks at Washio and Spin were constantly depending on. Um, I, I think it's a good lesson for an entrepreneur during any time. We, we counsel a lot of companies that we talk to on don't focus on raising a $20 million round and then chasing hockey stick growth. Build a business incrementally, raise more money than you need, spend less money than you raise, and and, and build a fundamentally good business. And, and, and don't get stuck on a course of action. When things change, you need to be able to kind of you know, have your head on a swivel and, and respond to facts on the ground. I think that's advice I would give a startup at any, at any point, but I think it gets amplified during a crisis. Um, what other lessons did you guys learn other than kind of that whole overarching theme of let's, let's raise more money than we might need. Let's deploy it more slowly than we think we should. Um, and, and be very, in the end, very conservative with, with, with the cash. Obviously, that served you well. But what other things did you learn through this process? Were there other things beyond those kind of basic business principles? Maybe being opportunistic. I, I think <laughs> that's going back to that. We kind of talked about it earlier. Is just you, you can't ever get comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why 
founders and entrepreneurs are wired a little bit differently is you, you you're unlike you get comfortable with being uncomfortable yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> and once you get comfortable like oh this something's wrong yeah something's wrong like <laughs> and we we ask ourselves like what is wrong why why am i feeling like this and and uh i, I think we i've become a lot more uncomfortable with being comfortable and and uh, I, I think that's just like a, a big lesson you need to continue you, you just can't get complacent because then that's when you just start settling and things start winding down and um, that's why we're wired a little bit differently. We want to feel uncomfortable. We want to be t- pressured into a corner and find our way out of it. And and uh, this was the ultimate corner to get sort of uh, pressured into, at least for, for now. Um, <laughs> and so uh, uh, that that was a huge, huge lesson, like that more than ever, that continue to be uncomfortable. That's when you're going to learn the most. I mean, I can't even think of an opportunity where, we've a- where we were able to learn more than we were just dealing with the, a, a lot of this and pivoting and tough decisions and new new opportunities and communicating new leadership, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that's that's a major, major lesson. Yeah, learned. I think there's a lot to be said for operating in that productive discomfort zone. You don't want to be too uncomfortable, but I think people generally thrive when there's just enough discomfort to where you have to innovate, you have to think, you have to dig in and, and uh and run with it. Well, look, guys, this has been great. I really appreciate you joining me today. I look forward to our next conversation, whatever that may be. Um, hopefully, it's not how Dan got in trouble for, <laughs> for dinner. Part three. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Cheers. Keep up the good fight. Love what you guys are doing. Thanks for having awesome. us. Yeah, thanks for Take having us, care. Sean.